follow your passion and learn every facet of it. Even if it seems boring or if it's not what you thought came with the territory, you will have an advantage in the end and you'll understand all of it better. Before we get into today's episode, I want to offer you a free service and a free gift. Yes, a free gift. You're a loyal best ever listener. You deserve free gifts. And it's from our best ever partner, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. So are you a landlord or investor who's self-managing? Well, if you're self-managing, is that the best way to scale your business? And are you fulfilled by self-managing or would you rather be doing other stuff with your time? Like, I don't know, scaling your business, scaling your portfolio, making more money, bringing more rentals, rental income coming in because you're acquiring more properties. If you want to scale, if you're not getting fulfilled by self-managing, then here comes a free service. Here comes a free gift. Linda Libatory, you know her, episode 714. I interviewed her about her best ever advice. Talked to her about her company, which is the solution to your problem, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. They handle the phone calls. They handle the rent collections. They handle late payment reminders. They handle the lease violation notices. Everything from the text messages, reminders, all the way to collecting the ACH payments. Linda's team will help you scale your business, whether you got 500 units or even a handful of units, go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. They're going to give you a free 30 minute goal strategy session. They'll give you free setup and the first 30 days free mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Again, if you are self-managing and you're not fulfilled by self-managing and you agree that there's a better way to scale your business, scale your investments, then go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Take Linda and her team up on their generous offer of giving you a trial and a strategy session to see if it's right for you. mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Emmett Smith, the NFL Hall of Fame football player, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a whole bunch of others. With us today, I am honored that we are talking to Tony Hawk. How you doing, Tony? Hey, good. Thank you. Nice to have you on the show, my friend. And a little bit about Tony. Obviously, best ever listeners, you know who he is. But really quick, he is the CEO of Birdhouse, which is a skateboarding company as well as an apparel line. He also, well, he's heading up in his video game series is one of the most popular video game franchises in history. It's got over $1.4 billion in sales. And oh yeah, he skates a little bit too. He was he turned pro at age 14 and 16 was widely regarded as the best competitive skateboarder in the world. So with that being said, Tony, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more info about what you're focused on right now? Sure. Well, I'm still actively skating, which seems to be a misconception about what I still do. I stopped competing a while ago, but that allowed me to really do more exhibition style skating and do a lot more video stuff. So that being said, we are working on a new video for my skate brand, Birdhouse. It'll be the first video we've released in 10 years. And other than that, I do a lot of promotion type of stuff. Anything that I can do to promote skateboarding, I try to get involved with. 
I'm one of the members of the ISF, which is the group that's ushering skateboarding into the Olympics in 2020. And I have a foundation that supports public skate parks in low-income areas. So basically, we try to give funding and resources to cities that need skate parks, especially in the more challenged areas. When you mentioned that you're still actively skateboarding, one thing that I read that was recently published about you is that you, I believe last year, you did 900 degree air. And first off, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Okay. All right. So secondly, I know what it is now that I've done some research, but will you tell the best ever listeners what the heck is that? A 900 is basically a two and a half spin in the air when you leave a ramp, like a vertical half pipe or a bowl, and then go and launch into a sort of a two and a half somersault. It's a trick that I did in the X Games in 1999 for the first time. I've done it a few times in my life since then, but I hadn't revisited it in about five or six years. And last year, I decided to do it on the anniversary of the first one ever. And that was 17 years to the date, and I was 48. And it was just as hard as it was. (laughs) And you said something interesting that I read about the 900 degree air. You said that it was more mental than physical. Will you elaborate on that? Well, it's definitely an equal parts of both, but I had the physical skills to do it for years before I really figured out the mental aspects of it. And the mental aspects are one, that it's possible. The approach it and not know if it was really possible was always a big stumbling block for me, but I always had a feeling that it was possible. And the key to it, the really the turning point for me was figuring out that I needed to shift my weight while I was mid spin. And so what that means is, I was always leaning too far forward on my front foot and kind of crashing into the bottom of the ramp. And that was my big mistake for years. That finally clicked. I figured out how to land with my weight distributed evenly and sort of recover from the rotation. And that was it. That's how it worked in the X Games. We literally kind of learned that day. You just said you literally learned it that day. Well, I'm just saying I figured out that technique during that event. And that was very much a mental thing. Uh Yeah figuring that out. And so much of it is having confidence. I use that analogy to all kinds of things, but really the idea that you have the confidence and the skill set to make something happen, that's just as important as doing it or as the idea of it itself. With that approach, you said it's kind of analogous towards other things. How have you applied that psychology to what you're doing as an entrepreneur? Well, if I have an idea of something, I believe that it will work. It's as simple as that. I don't go at it like thinking, I really hope for the best. You know, I hope this catches on. (laughs) It's very much that it's intuitive. You know, I think of something and I think that's something that could be of value to other people or that's something that's interesting or something that people would want to participate in. And I go forward with that mindset. And through the years, I've seen many skaters come and go and a lot of skaters who have the skill skip but don't have the confidence to see it through and their approach is very haphazard. Their approach is, I'm going to try it and hope for the best. And that doesn't work. And that doesn't work in business either. I believe that the idea that you go at something, believing it's going to work, it doesn't always work. That's not what I'm saying. But there are chances that it will succeed are much better when you have that confidence. Is there a way to hone that mindset where you go at it with the confidence you have the skill set, but you need to have the confidence to go at it. Is there a way to practice that at all for people who don't have that yet? Well, I'd like to think that there's a technique of baby steps in doing that. With me, just in terms of skating, I learned some very 
simple techniques early on. And I learned some tricks that maybe didn't really interest me, but benefited me in the end. And the same goes with business. Like the stuff you learn about a business, even if it seems mundane and it's not what you got into it for, it's going to help you later on. I'm talking about like all the minutia of how the business works, of, mm. of doing reports and sourcing materials and things. Those are the kind of things that you wouldn't think you'd need to concern yourself with if you're, say, the CEO. But at the same time, it's going to help you in the end because you're going to understand that process and you're going to see when things are going awry very quickly. Mm -hmm. Something I read recently, and correct me if this is not correct, but it was an article about a regret that you had. And it was talking about how you went in the early 2000s. Basically, if there was a movie premiere or some sort of premiere, you went to it versus spending more time at home. First off, is that an accurate summary of what I read? Yeah, that's a very detailed version of it. But for sure, there were things that I chose to do that beyond movie premieres, trips and things that were definitely should have not been priorities for me and, and weren't helping my career necessarily. And it was more like I thought I come to this position of whatever fame or importance that I should go do these things. And, and at some point, I was not choosing my time wisely. Thanks for the elaboration on it. And so the question I have is, is there a way if you could either go back or moving forward, this is how you separate what's relevant, not relevant. How do you know what's relevant to spend your time on and what's not relevant? You should spend more time at home or doing whatever. Well, these days I have a better grasp of that and I have a better skill set and sense of values of what I should be doing with my time. And my kids should always trump that in terms of what I feel like resonates. Really, it's the stuff that I feel like would have the most impact. So if I go choose to do something, I'm hoping that it either A, will promote skateboarding in a big way, B, that it will benefit my family, either by taking them on the trips or financially. I think that's as simple as it seems. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line these days. Like, is it worth my time? Am I getting paid for it? Mm -hmm. I was really spreading myself thin in those days in terms of lending myself to different events that weren't necessarily financially beneficial, but at the same thing, they also weren't beneficial to a greater good or something that I was proud of. You know, it was just more frivolous and more caught up in the hype. And I learned, what can I say? And I learned from making those mistakes. It's not like I'm sitting here going, I regret all that stuff. Right. Yeah, I could have spent my time better, but now I've got a better handle on it and I've, I lived through the fire, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Can you talk about maybe a investing philosophy? And the reason I'm asking about this is the primary audience of the best ever listeners are real estate investors, but we're also entrepreneurs. And I believe, as I imagine most of the listeners believe, is that as real estate investors, we are entrepreneurs. We're creating businesses. And I read that one of your first investments was a house, actually. And if that's the case, can you elaborate on that? I was making pretty good money when I was in my later years of high school, junior, senior years. I was making more than my teachers. And for me, it seemed like I was making a fortune. And my dad recognized that all of my income was basically 1099. There were no taxes taken out. So that was one cause for concern. And my dad said, you know, you really should be putting this money away. And it wasn't like I was spending it, but I definitely thought there was no end in sight. And so I wasn't planning ahead for the future. And my dad said, you know, I think we should consider investing in a home for you in the future. And I was 17. So we found a new housing development that was near where they were and he co-signed for me. So I was a house owner while I was a senior in high school. 
And that proved its own challenges because suddenly I was free, but I still had this responsibility to go to school. And of course, my house is always the party house because <laughs> my parents are never home. <laughs> So you bought that house and earlier you mentioned if you have an idea, you believe it will work. How did you start Birdhouse? Did you fund it with your own money or was there other means that you're able to fund that as it got started? I got together with another former pro skater and we partnered our resources together. So basically we started a skate brand and distribution brand mm -hmm. all at the same time. That money came from getting a second mortgage on the second house that I purchased. Okay. And basically taking all the equity out of that house and using that money to start Birdhouse. Because at that point, I was spread pretty thin with my expenses and I didn't really have money saved because I had the second house with a huge mortgage and my income was, basically my income was declining by half every month based on the popularity of skateboarding. Mm -hmm. So he and I both put in $40,000 and started Birdhouse and Blitz Distribution. And then I finally sold that house for what I owed on it and moved back to the first house I bought when I was 17. So you started Birdhouse when your income was being cut in half on a monthly basis, which leads me to believe that skateboarding in general had gone up previously, but then it was starting to decline. What gave you the confidence to start a company when the industry at the time was in a decline? I did it based on the history of skateboarding and seeing how cyclical it had become. Mm. I started skating in the heyday of the 1970s when skating was like the biggest thing, but it was big, more along the lines of a yo-yo or a hula hoop. It was like this toy that was hot for a minute and then it declined, but I stuck with it through the 80s. So I felt like it was the one thing I really was good at. Then it exploded again in the mid to late 80s when I was in high school and then it started to decline again, but very, very quickly. And that was when we decided to start Birdhouse because we thought based on this graph that we've seen, it's due to come back. And that was the hope. That was the intent. And it took longer than we expected. That's the bottom line. Is <laughs> we had a few leaner years than we anticipated. And there were a couple of times when we considered just giving up altogether. You said based on the graph that you saw, and perhaps it's not, you didn't literally look at a graph, but I'm wondering, how did you see that skateboarding was popular in XYZ time? It wasn't a Google search, so how no, did you research more, that? Based on experience, we saw it as sort of the seven-year cycle based on the two cycles prior from the inception of skateboarding for the most part. And so we figured if we started this time of 1992 when things were slowing down greatly, then we would probably start to see some profit around 1995, 96, mm -hmm. which did happen, but it was much slower and much more gradual than we expected. But around the time of 1999, 2000, it went bigger than we ever dreamed. Skating exploded. It was on the X Games, you know, we had the video games out. Things happened on a much bigger scale than we ever would have dreamed. When people hear your name, they probably immediately think of success and someone who has just an incredible talent. They might not think of the times when you were incredibly challenged to get to where you're at. 
And I read that you took some odd jobs in the early 1990s, whether it's editing video for skate companies and things like that. Can you just provide maybe some context or some contrast for, okay, here's where you're at now, but here's some of the things that you had to go through and some of the jobs you had to take or challenge you had to overcome to get to where you're at? In the early 90s, it was especially tricky because that was my first son was born. And suddenly I was faced with raising a family with a declining income and a very risky prospect of doing a skate company. So that was already on the plate. As we sort of limped along, I was on a very tight budget for food. I was eating Taco Bell, Top Ramen, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the regular. That was it. When we would go on tour for our skate brand, we used our delivery van. There were five skaters all staying in the same hotel room, skating in parking lots for gas money and food money and hopefully money for a hotel for us to get to the next spot. That was our tour. <laughs> and maybe 100 people would show up, if that. Those kind of things, they seem like a struggle, but at the same time, we were absolutely doing what we loved. Mm -hmm. And so it, when I look back on it, it wasn't this great hardship. The hardship was getting injured and things like that along the way where it's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this simply because I, I physically can't. But for the most part, we really enjoyed it. We were a team. We believed in what we were doing. My partner, Pear, who we started Birdhouse with, was still believed in it, you know, and he just kind of laughed a lot of that stuff off. But in hindsight, it was scary for sure. Like I said, I, I was raising a family. I had to buy diapers. I had to still pay a mortgage. You know, it, was, mm -hmm. it was tight. For a best ever listener who is in a situation where things are tight and they're pursuing what they're passionate about and they have a significant other, what's the best way to approach that conversation to say whatever you need to say to help make sure you're aligned with them? Do you have any insight there? Well, I think that you obviously got to make compromises on both sides and figure out what are the bare necessities, what can you afford, what kind of lifestyle can you afford, what are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of chasing this dream. But I will tell you that if you are doing what you love and you are chasing your passion and it's just paying the bills, there is way more happiness in that than doing something you don't like doing for a lot more money. Mm. I truly believe that. And that seems like some great soul searching type of analogy, but it's true because what I do now, like I would do for free any day and I get paid ridiculous amounts of money to ride my skateboard stuff. It seems like this absurd dream that someone's just going to rip it away from me because they're like, you don't deserve that. That's crazy. And even if they did that, I would continue to do it because it's my favorite thing. That actually is a nice segue to a question from a best ever listener who I reached out to my audience prior to us jumping on the call and asked them what questions they have for you. And I selected just a couple questions. And one of them, and this is from Chris in California, he says, did you start with big ambitious goals or has your vision expanded as you've gone along? No, the goal was to have a successful skate brand, to be able to pay our bills and to foster a really good team. And by team, I mean like a skate team that we would sponsor and, and develop talent that way. Things got bigger, and I don't want to say that they were big goals, but more opportunities arose through that success. So 
For instance, my siblings and I all had young children and we could not find clothes that we thought were cool for our kids in those days. It was all Oshkosh bagash. It was all like dressing up like little sailors. And it was like, why can't we just find skate surf clothes for our kids in those sizes? They want to wear that kind of stuff. So we created the brand, Mohawk Clothing, in 1998. And it's been going strong ever since. We were with Quicksilver for a long time. We were exclusively at Kohl's. Now we're at Walmart Canada. We were with Cherokee Group. And that all was born from what we thought was an obvious void in the market. And then other things, you know, like video games and other licensing opportunities, that they would just sort of, all that stuff was, I don't see as a natural progression, but, but a lot of it was very intuitive because it was just there and it seemed like such an obvious fit. With the show, we always like to get your best advice ever. And in this case, based on your experience as a successful entrepreneur, what is your best advice ever for the best ever listeners? My best advice is follow your passion and learn every facet of it. Even if it seems boring or if it's not what you thought came with the territory, you will have an advantage in the end and you'll understand all of it better. And that ties into what you're saying earlier about if you have the skill set but not the confidence, you get the confidence by knowing the minutia of how the business works. Yeah, absolutely. What's this quote mean to you? You're only good as your last trick. You got to keep challenging yourself. Stay relevant. That analogy can be used in all kinds of ways. But basically, if you just staying the course and doing the same old thing year after year, people are going to forget about you. And your product is going to be stale. And no matter how successful you get, you got to find that next challenge. Mm-hmm. It's not that I believe that. That was just in me. I had to keep learning new tricks, even if I was considered the number one skater at the time. Your video game franchise is ridiculously successful. I remember playing it and still I've got some buddies that we actually, in preparation for this call, we, we were playing it. And it definitely, definitely 100% introduced me to skateboarding. So check that box for sure, at least focus group of one. But with your involvement in the video game franchise, when it first got started, what was your priority when giving feedback? My priority was authenticity, staying true to skating and skate culture and making it very diverse in terms of what types of skaters are represented, what types of terrain, what types of tricks, what types of companies. I wanted it to represent all of it, not just the way I do it. And any lesson learned along the way as that franchise has evolved and just become a monster, whether good or bad, just anything that comes to mind that you've learned along the way? That's a good question. For one, you can't just keep putting out the same product. And not every addition is going to be well-received. Mm-hmm. But I think the big lesson I learned was just don't listen to the hate. There was plenty of people that, that think once we were doing sequels, it was like, this one sucks, this is <laughs> one, this, you know. Oh, I lost interest after Underground, but there was a huge audience that loved it more and more as it went along. And so the haters are loud, but they're not always right. Or they're not always the most important voices. Mm -hmm. And basically everything we've talked about can be applied to any entrepreneurial venture, including real estate. A couple quick last questions for you. We usually go into lightning round for the show, but we're going to skip the lightning round. Just ask a couple questions more from the audience. This comes from Alton, who lives in Detroit, Michigan. And he asks, what did you have to tap into internally when people said you couldn't ride a skateboard for a living, if they did say that at all? 
They definitely did say that. I was lucky in that I was young enough to be naive in that sense, where I was like, well, I'm only in high school. You know, this isn't my career. And it wasn't until after high school when it officially became my career. And then I realized that I could make a living doing what I love, but I did have to work at it. I mean, that's one thing is that it doesn't all just come easy. Even if you're good at it, you have to do it when you're not feeling good. You have to do it in circumstances that are not great. You're required to be at your peak performance at any given time. And all those things, I didn't expect that I'd really have to work at that. So when it got later into my 20s, then it seemed more absurd. Where it's like, you still skateboard? Are you kidding me? But at that point, I was already so invested in it and so embedded in the culture that I didn't listen. What's a daily routine that you do that you believe leads to your success? And this is Theo from Cincinnati. A daily routine. If you have any, maybe you don't. It's not like some OCD thing, but just staying focused with what I want to accomplish. For instance, I'm working on a new video right now called Saturdays, and that is going to be include our whole team. It's the first video that we've done in 10 years as Birdhouse. So it's highly anticipated, and we're getting down to the end here, and it's overwhelming, the amount of details that we need to fix and all the stuff that we have to get together. And every day I wake up like, all right, I'm going to just get a couple more things done. And if I really lost focus of that or was overwhelmed with it, it just wouldn't happen because I am the point person to do that. And in a lot of ways, my name, my connection opens a lot of doors in terms of what we can do with it. And so a lot of it is on me. So my daily routine is stay the course. You mentioned the philanthropic approach that you have in the Tony Hawk Foundation. What's the best ever way you like to give back? That's my best way of giving back is trying to provide the same type of facility that gave me a sense of identity when I was young. I was very lucky in that I lived near one of the last running skate parks in the U.S. And that was my home away from home. That's where I honed my skills. That's where I met some of my best friends. And I shared ideas with like-minded individuals. And that was never lost on me that I was lucky to have that facility. And, and I want to provide that same type of facility for kids that are in more challenged areas that have very few outlets. And maybe they found something they love in skateboarding or something about skateboarding they love. And they just want to do that with other people that are into it in an environment where they are supported. And that's a skate park. And I'm not trying to breed pro skaters in these areas. I'm just trying to give them a place to go hang out and do it. And the city cares about them. Build a sense of community. Yeah. Anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? No, I'm just hugely proud to still be doing this for a living. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so thankful to the fans of our video game series, the fans of Birdhouse, of X Games. That's the reason that I'm still able to do this effectively. And I hope I can keep producing stuff that people will want to see. How can the best ever listeners check out that video that Birdhouse is coming up with or anything else that you've got in the pipeline? Well, the video will be done in August, so just okay. follow Birdhouse Skateboards on all the social media, in any social media, and, and you'll get updates about it. As far as the foundation goes, like I said, that's what's the most important to me, and, and uh, that's TonyHawkFoundation.org. Excellent. Well, Tony, this truly was a conversation with a very incredibly focused individual, and that's one of the takeaways I got from our conversation. As you said right out of the gate, if you have an idea, you believe it will work. And how you do that is having the skill set and the confidence. And from the confidence, you know the minutia. That's how you're able to have the confidence. And That's the thing. You can develop the skill set and develop the confidence. It's not these two things that you just have to have magically when you are born. Right. 
constantly learn those things. Yep. And thanks for talking about your philanthropic approach as well and really doing what you love and being laser focused on that as well as taking an analytical approach and kind of using your intuition when founding Birdhouse. Holy cow, looking at the cyclical nature of skateboarding and then placing a bet at that time on yourself and on the industry and going through some lean times but doing what you love and then ultimately coming out and building an enterprise. So thanks so much for being on the show, Tony. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you. Are you an investor who self-manages, talks to your residents, collects checks, and handles all the day-to-day tasks? Well, there's a better way, best ever listener, and guess what that better way is Secure Pay One. Secure Pay One, the landlord helper, We'll have conversations over the phone with your residents whenever there's an issue and the residents can pay you directly. So schedule your free trial and 30-minute session today at mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at beforethemillions.com. That's beforethemillions.com.